0: This is 100 Years of Cox. You are listening to a podcast by Francis Thompson. Today I'm reading five letters written in 1909 by Edmund, Annie May, Avis, Oldwin, and Enid. I've called this episode Floreat Budgetum after a phrase Oldwin uses in his letter. I don't know any Latin but I believe the translation is long may the budget flourish, particularly relevant as Mrs. Cox's mother dies in June 1909. Edmund takes weeks to write his letter and he's sure that the other siblings are going to miss him out. Annie May, his wife, writes a note in the budget. Oh, please don't put Edmund on the blacklist. Enid and Bernard have visited Hallam Fields for the christening of baby Leslie and the church lads' minstrel troupe had to rush for their train after a show and travel home with their faces still blacked up. Avis is also late with her letter, with news about Tarpoli in Cheshire and Billy, the young girl she teaches. Edmund barely mentioned mother, who was seriously ill at the time. Avis hoped that mother was enjoying the lovely weather at Folkestone, where she was recuperating at the seaside with Vera. Aldwyn's letter was written in March, and his letter arrives in England two months later. Oldwin has been to visit Neville in South Africa on his way home and he's writing whilst travelling back to Lake Nyasa. Oldwyn is travelling up the Zambezi River towards Nyasaland. They are about to meet another steamer coming downstream, heading for the coast. So Oldwyn finishes his letter and sends it in the mailbag of the downstream ship. No red pillar boxes for Oldwin to use. The last letter in Budget 19 was from Enid. She talks about Vera playing hockey at Richmond. England ladies versus Scotland ladies. She mentions the christening of maybe Leslie at Helen Fields, where Enid was godmother and Bernard was godfather. And she describes mother going into the nursing home and having an operation in March, and then the whole family becoming ill and going to bed. Enid wrote her letter from Landudno in North Wales, where she is recuperating from influenza. And she describes roller skating on the pier. And her friend Ethel who is the mother of Dick Hall, the little boy at Plymouth with the muddy stockings, has a husband in the Navy. Ethel says that the Navy expects a war with Germany is coming. Edmund's Letter, The Parsonage, Hallam Fields, Ilkeston thursday april 25th 1909 dear budget members at last this number resumes its travels i am afraid it is no use making excuses as you could of course say that if i had time to play golf i might have found time to write the budget i could not bring myself to send it off without any contribution from myself and so kept on keeping it until I should find time to write something in spite of May's reminders to send it on. I have quite realised that I shall be missed out in the next round of the budget, so thought I was taking my fortnight, but I'm horrified to find that it has been considerably over that. I'm afraid that I have established a budget record that will last forever. At any rate, I hope so. I am afraid Mother won't find much fresh in the budget since it was last at Sydenham. Our neighbours, the Wards, have got a baby boy, which arrived yesterday morning. May is pleased for various reasons. One is that she says our youngster will have someone to play with. And principally, I think, because she says that he is much uglier than even our own bouncing baby boy was. I hear that Mr Ward has already allowed the baby to be sick on him, which so far I have carefully avoided. I hope our youngster will develop a few good features as he grows older. He is certainly big and strong and he has good lungs, etc. And I suppose he can't help his face. As May will probably read this letter when the budget ever does reach here again, I expect I had better drop the subject. I had a nice little surprise letter last night. Long Eaton, St Lawrence's Cricket Club, come here on Saturday next to open the season. I am expecting to play, though at present I don't see any chance of getting in any practice. The letter was from their secretary, saying the club wished to make me a presentation. Or rather, he says, The above club would like you to accept a present from them as a slight acknowledgement for your long and valuable services to the club, etc. They gave me a very nice bag when I had to resign the post of secretary, so I certainly had never expected anything else. I suppose we must consider it as a sort of belated wedding present. Anyhow, it is distinctly pleasing and quite exciting. I see May has at last been prevailed on to write a note for the budget. So I may be excused a short note this time as dinner is waiting and I'm going out directly afterwards. I have been in the garden most of the morning. Our church lads brigade, minstrel troop helped at Ilkeston CLB Entertainment last night, which was not over until just before 11pm. It was a great rush to catch the last train and six or seven had to come home with blackened faces to the great amusement of the other passengers. Love to all from your disgraced brother Edmund. It is no use my trying to comment on the other letters this time. There is no time to do them justice. Notes on Edmund's letter. This is a typical letter from Edmund, detailing everything that means he is too busy to write his letter. He barely mentions his wife or his new baby, and instead writes about Cricket and the Church Lads Brigade. Their neighbours have a new baby, which thankfully is even uglier than baby Leslie. Mr Ward has already allowed his baby to be sick on him. Edmund has been careful to avoid this happening to him. Whoops! Edmund thinks he'd better stop. He realises that May will read his letter when the budget next comes round again. I know he was an Adwardian, and I shouldn't be surprised that he was an absent and disinterested father, but I think Arthur displays better manners when referring to his wife and children. It is always interesting following the routes of England's former railway lines. Station Road in Ilkeston is still there, but the station and the railway have long gone due to Dr Beeching. There is a large Tesco supermarket there today. Edmund and the boys would have gone east from Hallam Fields, across the canal to Trowell Station, then taken the train north to Ilkeston, which would only have been a short trip. Edmund thinks it is funny that some of the boys had to travel home on the train with their faces still blacked up, which was clearly not the done thing in 1909. He uses the N-word in describing the minstrel troupe, which is not the done thing for me to mention today. St Lawrence's Church of England in Long Eaton is where Edmund and Annie May were married, and also where Edmund was a curate when he was first ordained, and the church has its own cricket team. St Lawrence's is coming to play cricket against Hallam Fields, and the Long Eaton Club is going to make a presentation to Edmund in acknowledgement for his long and valuable services to the club over many years. Edmund lived in this part of Derbyshire for the majority of his adult life. May's Letter, The Parsonage, Hallam Field, Ilkeston, April twenty ninth, nineteen o nine. Dear family. I am so very much ashamed at the long time Edmund has kept the budget that I wish to suggest that in future it may be addressed to me so that if, after various reminders, he will not make time to write a note, I shall feel justified in sending it on without one. I should feel very sorry if we were put on the blacklist again because we shall soon have some wonderful Leslie stories to relate and I am sure you would all be sorry to miss them. The only way in which Baby has distinguished himself lately is by screaming for two hours at bedtime simply because he was not well on Saturday and so was picked up. He has looked for the same attention every night since. His father says it is his mother's bad temper coming out. I dare say it is, but I should think there is a bit of his father's will connected with it too. We were pleased to have Enid and Bernard here for the christening. I am afraid it will be a long time before some of you see the young man. Edmund seems to be making up for lost time now, so please forgive him once more. Baby would send you all a kiss if he could, I am sure. Your loving sister, May. Notes on May's letter. Edmund didn't realise that the reason Annie May wrote a note for the budget was that she was so appalled that Edmund had again taken many weeks to get around to writing rather than the budget expectation of just one week before it should have been in the post again. Edmund wrote, I see May has at last been prevailed on to write a note for the budget, so I may be excused a short note this time, as dinner is waiting. Edmund's dinner is ready, and he thinks he has persuaded May to write a letter, so Edmund is not going to write a longer letter this time. May pleads to the other siblings not to put Edmund on the blacklist they will soon have some wonderful baby stories to share. And baby Leslie would send all his aunts and uncle a kiss if he could. I suspect May was also lonely and appreciated reading all the family news. It sounds like Edmund didn't pay her much attention. First-hand historical accounts are always fascinating, especially when you can read between the lines and imagine what family life was like. According to my grandfather Leslie, Hallanfield's parsonage was not a happy home, and there is great sadness ahead for May and Edmund. She loved Edmund dearly, but I don't think he loved her in return. I can't help comparing family life at the parsonage with Arthur and his wife Dorothy. Arthur doesn't describe Dorothy as his better half. Instead he says she is his better two-thirds. <laughs> Letter, Portal, Tarpaulay, Cheshire, May 7th, 1909. Dear family, I send this on late, I'm afraid, like the rest of you this time. My first error, I think. I kept forgetting to write it when I was here. This budget has been a time going round. The news is all terribly stale by now. Please spare all those who have kept it over time. And from now on, let anyone who keeps it over a week be left out next time this arrangement won't make me miss my turn i came here on may the 3rd thinking we should only have a week here but we do not go to london until the 17th that is not far off however it is very nice here i wish we were staying longer the two schoolboys are here at the moment one is at eton aged about 16 and the other is at a preparatory school about 12 i think they are quite nice boys We've not been starting lessons until ten in the morning, as breakfast has not been till nine, and it is often late. However, I am going to have it earlier in future, I believe, which will be much better. After lessons, I take Billy out in the garden, or sometimes for a walk. I get a little tired of playing houses and horses, etc. with her, but of course, these are the games she likes best. I have started a nature notebook with her, and we keep a list of the flowers we find, and she's very much interested at present. The eldest boy, Tom, is interested in birds, but does not know much about them. We all went bird nesting this afternoon, but only found thrushes and blackbird nests and two hedge sparrows. I have the dining room flowers to do here, and I write the menu cards for every evening. Mrs Brooks gives me a rough copy in French. Cuthbert would like the dinners. I feel they are wasted on me. I really don't appreciate them much. Mr. Brooks's married sister and husband have been the only people staying here at present and now they have left and Mr. Brooks's mother is now here. At Whitsuntide, we are all coming down here for ten days, I think, and either then or before we go to London there is going to be a house party and a tennis tournament. How shy I will be at dinner at any rate. There are two tennis courts here, and they can get a third, but they are not rolled or mown, and at present the tennis I have had with Dorothy and the boys and Mrs Brooks is not up to much. I am very bad too, but they all play rather slackly, and with twelve balls, always, which takes endless time to look after. I am wondering whether mother is getting the splendid weather at Folkestone that we are. It is glorious here now. "'I am sorry. I cannot write any more. "'I am not in the mood at all, so it would be wiser to stop, "'and I must not keep this any longer. "'Your loving sister, Avis M. Cox.'" Notes on Avis's letter. Avis is a sinner as well. She kept the budget too long, but not as long as Edmund did. After mother's operation, Avis went down to London to help when everyone was ill in bed, but she's now returned to Cheshire and to her job as a governess for the Honourable Mrs Brooks. The detail is fascinating. There are four children. Marjorie, known as Billy, is the little girl who Avis teaches. The other daughter is Dorothy, who is age 19, but is still treated as a child. Her mother decides which books and which plays at the theatre are suitable for her daughter. The oldest son, Tom, is at Eton College, which is close to Windsor Castle, and the younger son boards at a boys' prep school. Breakfast isn't until 9am, which seems incredibly late to us today. Avis has to arrange the flowers for the dining room, and she also has to neatly write out the evening menu in French. The siblings would have laughed hysterically at this, as Avis does not have the neatest handwriting. I do find it hard to imagine living in a house where a maid would light a fire in your bedroom. Other maids will see to your every need. A cook prepares the meals. Footmen wearing a smart uniform and white gloves serve your meals at the dining table. And the evening dinner menu is written out in French every day. And in the garden, men would mow the tennis lawns, roll them and mark them out with paint. Oh, to have that many staff. Although Avis says the tennis has been very poor, Dorothy and the boys are very slack at tennis and Avis has played better tennis elsewhere. The whole household is shortly relocating to the house in London and then later in the summer they will be back at Tarpoli, and there will be a large house party with many guests and a lot of tennis. It is easy to imagine many motor cars coming down the long drive carrying the smart, the wealthy and the influential and poor Avis is worried that she will have to talk to them all at the dinner table. Mother has left the nursing home and is now at Folkestone taking the sea air and recuperating, with Vera, the nurse, and one of the housemaids from Sydenham to help, and Avis hopes that the weather is as splendid in Folkestone as it currently is in Cheshire. Oldwin's letter SS Adolf Verman at Bevier, Friday, March the 12th, 1909, put in by Avis. Dear Budgeteers, I will at any rate start my next contribution to the budget, though I don't know how many weeks or months it will be before I shall see another copy of it. I have sent most of my news in my letter to mother, so please look on this simply in the light of a supplement neville was in very good form and quite recovered from his weeks of bad indigestion i thought he was marvelously energetic for the hot climate they have an excellent tennis court there earth which plays very truly and everybody told me that it was simply due to neville that it was both made and kept in order though nominally they have a small club i was also surprised to find out what a keen gardener he was their little patch of garden was gay with flowers. I got a few more seeds from him, also the stones of a kind of peach, which i had never seen before, i.e. the fruit clings to the stone. It is an inferior fruit to the free stone peach, but I am told that it is such a hardy tree that I am going to try and introduce it at the lake. It would be a great and very pleasant addition to our fruit if it should prove successful. The hillses pronounced as two syllables, with whom Neville is living at Hatherley, entertained me most royally, and I think they make Neville very comfortable. Of course, the father is only an ordinary German workman, but he has been out in the Transvaal for 25 years, and there is very little in the way of class distinction out there. It doesn't seem funny to find Neville living with them. Anyway, I should imagine that he is far better off with them than he was in his old bachelor quarters. He is quite a second father to the family and consulted as an authority on matters of cooking, gardening, doctoring, etc. The youngest daughter, Minnie Hilsa, is coming to England probably at the end of this month as her heart is bad. If any of you should come across her, as I expect you will, I hope you will give her a good time as they all did their best to look after me and were most hospitable. Perhaps you may remember that it was her sister, Martell, whom Jimmy Potts married. I wonder if any of you realised that Hathalie is the same place as Erster Fabrican, where Neville was stationed during the war. The name was changed after the war. I personally had never taken it in, though of course that explains why it is he has found his way out there to live, as otherwise it is abnormally far for the daily journey to and from Pretoria. Talking of geography, I know that some people at home were somewhat hazy in their ideas as to the map of Africa. But I was much surprised to find that Neville was under the impression that I lived in Uganda rather than Nyasaland. The consequence was that various people kept asking me questions about Uganda and inquiring after people who lived there. Neville got a free pass and escorted me down to Dalagua Bay. It was a very comfortable train, but to English ideas, extraordinarily slow, though Neville says he thinks it is the fastest train in South Africa. Neville had written to have two seats reserved, and we were very much amused to find that they had been reserved for Mr and Mrs Cox. Fortunately, we had the compartment to ourselves, so it may have been a blessing in disguise. When we got down to Delagua Bay, the steamer had to leave almost at once, but the rest of our party were much struck by Neville's resemblance to Bernard, whom they remembered from Southampton. Only they thought Neville was considerably taller. Cheer up, Bernard. I think the two fine moustaches were the chief point of resemblance. The ship has now stopped off at Bevier, and they have been unloading a tremendous lot of iron pipes, etc. Very heavy. They have been abominably careless over it. At least five times, the whole bundle of pipes has slipped out of its fastening in mid-air and they've all gone clattering back into either the hold or the barge alongside. The natives who were doing most of the labour were fairly scared out of their lives. Fortunately, nobody was hurt except very slightly, though I am told that two were killed through the same carelessness on the last voyage. It is clear that there is no workman's compensation out here. 6pm, Saturday, March the 13th. We are just leaving Bevia. We were kept waiting over one hour by a party of first-class passengers who had gone off fishing up the river. They had a rare fright, lest they should be left behind. They certainly would have been by the Union Castle line. One part of my visit to the Transvaal that I specially enjoyed, apart from seeing Neville, was my two weekends spent in Johannesburg, almost entirely in looking up our native Christians from Lake Nyassa, "'who were working in the gold mines. "'The first Sunday I saw some 35 of them, "'and the next Sunday about 30 more "'in another part of the Rand, "'and there are quite as many again "'whom I hadn't a chance of seeing "'who were working in other mines. "'They were delighted to see me "'and on the whole seem very happy "'and well cared for. "'Yet, when all is said and done, "'it is a horribly unnatural life. "'They are living there a year, "'or maybe several, "'away from their wives and families.' And in a very furnace of temptation, as far as drink and bad women are concerned. I made various inquiries about our Christians. The two fathers of the community of the resurrection volunteered that they were quite the most consistent native Christians they got at the mines. And they see some from almost every mission in South Africa. Of course, there are some sad exceptions, some of which I came across. As far as my own talks went with our Christians themselves, they seem to be really trying to keep straight. Las Deo, praise be to God. God grant that I am not taking too sanguine a view and that he will grant them strength to persevere. One of them, Christopher Luetto of Lacoma, was doing an excellent work among his fellows. He is working in an office of one of the mines during the week, and spends nearly all his Sundays going round the mines and keeping in touch with our Christians. He's had leave to act as catechist, and he takes services for them. He has learnt English well, and he interprets the sermons of the Resurrection Fathers. In fact, he has developed tremendously, as at Lacoma he wasn't a teacher at all, but simply a hired hand in one of the sailing boats. Both Sundays I was pretty busy, especially on the second, We had a choral celebration at 7.30 at which I preached and 15 made their communion. Then after breakfast we had matins and thence went to one of the compounds where we sang hymns and I preached to a good many of the heathen brethren who had also come from the lake. I had just spoken to the compound manager as I went in to know if I should be in the way and he said it would be all right in the inner compound. Presently, when I finished preaching and was standing chatting with a mixture of Christians and heathen from the lake, the manager came across and talked to me. He volunteered that they were good workers and gave no trouble. And then he said, if you know their lingo, you might ask them if they have any complaints to make about their food or anything else. As sometimes it is difficult to tell through the ordinary interpreters. I asked them and at once they were all chattering. I thought there didn't seem to be much wrong, as far as I could understand. Then finally, they said there wasn't anything really to complain of as to food or anything above ground, but that sometimes the miners knocked them about a good deal below ground. When I explained this to the manager, he said he was afraid there was some truth in it, and they were trying to pull up the miners, and he asked me to urge the boys, if they really had any complaints, to let him know at once, and not to let it smoulder for a week or two first. It was all very interesting, and I believe the compound managers really do their best. In fact, there is at times, I am told, quite a competition amongst them, so that their mine may get a good name amongst the boys, and so induce them to seek work there. SW Empress, March 17th, 1909, to continue. On the same Sunday evening, I preached twice to two small English congregations at the two tiny churches in charge of the man with whom I'd spent Saturday night, McCormick. Enid, it may interest you to know that he is the younger brother of the McCormick whom Mary Wainwright worshipped with in Liverpool. When he was at home last year, he took services for his brother for a month and he knew Miss Wainwright and he'd heard of Cyril. He was a very nice, jolly sort of chap and was much interested to hear that I had met the McCormick twins. I am finishing this letter as we travel up the Zambezi. I hadn't time to do so at Chindi, as I was so busy seeing after our baggage and taking English and native services. We left Chindi on the Monday afternoon, and we should get to Port Herald on Friday evening. We are going somewhat slowly, as this is the month when the Zambezi is at its fullest, and there is a five-mile-an-hour current against us this year the river is abnormally high and has flooded its banks in many directions a good many of the native villages are under water the river is extraordinarily different to when i've seen it either time before as then it was the dry season and there were innumerable sandbanks now it is an enormous expanse of water frequently more than a mile across the current is too strong for any hippos or crocodiles to be seen We are just about to meet another steamer on her way down, so I shall take the opportunity to send this letter by her. I hope some of you will take pity on me and write to me individually, as well as collectively in the budget. Floriat Budgetum. Your loving brother, H.A. Maitre Cox. Notes on Aldwyn's letter. Aldwyn's initials were H.A.M. Cox, so of course his family nickname was Ham. He never used his first name, Harold, and was instead known as Aldwyn. His ship sailed from England at the beginning of February, and a month later he's been to stay with his brother Neville in Pretoria in South Africa. I never knew there were separate varieties of peach, called clingstone and freestone peaches. Neville is quite the gardener, and Aldwyn is taking seeds from the garden at Hatherley, as well as peach stones, back with him. Aldwin says it is quite odd how the fruit of the peach clings to the stone, but he's going to try and get a tree established at the mission at Lake Nyasa. Hatherley has a tennis court, which is earth, and Neville does the majority of the maintenance, and Neville is surprisingly athletic, considering the heat. Oldwyn also explains to the family that the farm at Hathley is the same place as Ersta Fabrica where Neville was stationed whilst he was a soldier during the Burr War. Oldwyn thinks it is a very long way for Neville to travel into Pretoria for work and is surprised that Neville doesn't live nearer to the city. I looked it up. Ersta Fabrica is 9 miles, 15 kilometres from the centre of Pretoria. Quite a normal commute from the suburbs today but it was evidently a long way to travel to work in 1909. Neville lives with the Hilsa family, and Aldwyn helpfully tells me that Hilsa is pronounced with two syllables. They are a German working class family, which should be odd for the middle class Machel Cox family, but Aldwyn says there is very little class distinction in South Africa. He is, of course, talking from the perspective of a white Englishman. I don't know how many daughters there were, but one of them, Martell, is married to Jimmy Potts, who presumably the family knew. The youngest is Minnie, with a weak heart, who will shortly be coming to England. In 1911, Neville marries another of the daughters, Marie, and they move to Canada. According to letters written by the cousins in the 1970s, Neville proposed to each of the daughters in turn until one of them said yes. Neville worked for the railways in South Africa and he got tickets for the two brothers to travel east from Pretoria to Delagua Bay on the train. Today the city is called Maputo and it is the capital of Mozambique on the coast. The tickets were reserved for Mr and Mrs Cox which amused the brothers. Oldwyn thinks it was a very slow train but Neville says it is the fastest train in South Africa. Oldwyn's travelling companions from England have also paused their journey, and they all board the steamer together at Delagua Bay to return to Nyasaland. The other mission staff see the family likeness between Neville and Bernard, who they saw at Southampton when Oldwyn was farewelled, but their impression was that Neville was considerably taller than Bernard. Oldwyn wrote in his letter, Cheer up, Bernard. I think the two fine moustaches were the chief point of resemblance. Oldwin and his companions are on the SS Adolf Wurman, and the steamer has stopped off at Bevia, which Oldwin spells as B E V I A. I originally thought Bevia was in Madagascar, but it was possibly a spelling mistake. I now think Oldwin could be describing Bera, spelt Beira, spelt B E I R A, which is in Mozambique, on the route north, heading towards Chindi and the Zambezi River. Dock workers are unloading iron pipes and they keep dropping them, either back into the hold or clattering onto the adjacent barge. It sounds like there was no pier and that unloading was happening at anchor using a makeshift crane out in the bay. As Aldwyn says, amazing that no one was killed. It is historical anecdotes that make old letters fascinating. A group of first-class passengers have been on a fishing trip up the river and are late returning. The steamer waited for them and Oldwyn describes their panic as they returned. They thought the steamer might have left without them. If this was a steamer from the Union Castle line, the passengers would have been left behind, says Oldwyn, first-class passengers or not. Oldwyn finishes his letter on the SW Empress. The passengers got to Chindi, and then they transferred from the larger ship to a smaller steamer, which would then take them up the Zambezi. SS stands for Steamship, The SS Adolf Vermann was a larger ocean-going steamer, whereas SW appears to stand for side wheel. I think the SW Empress was a smaller steamer with a wheel on the side, more suited for going up the Zambezi River. A smaller draft is advantageous for riverboats. For example, boats on the River Danube in Europe have a very shallow draft because the Danube is shallow in places. Interestingly, I've looked at the prefix RMS as well as the prefix SS. The Titanic is often referred to as the RMS Titanic as well as being called the SS Titanic. Apparently, this was because her official title was Royal Mail Steamer Titanic. Aldwin gives some fabulous descriptive passages which are easy to imagine. The Zambezi is in full flood, almost a mile wide and the nearby villages are underwater, which also means no hippos or crocodiles can be seen. Presumably, when the Zambezi has less water in it, passengers see plenty of wildlife from the boat. The steamer travels upstream, from Chindi to Port Herald. Port Herald is now called Nasanji, spelled N-S-A-N-J-E, and it's still the border city between Mozambique and Malawi. If you look on maps... You can clearly follow the route Oldwin and his companions took. Chindi is on the coast. You can follow the route of the Zambezi River upstream to Nisanji, then on to Blantyre, Liwand, and then Monkey Bay, which is at the southern end of what is now Lake Malawi. In 1909, Oldwin lived at Nakotakota, on the western shores of the lake. I think his church was All Saints, which is now All Saints Cathedral. Oldwyn's steamer is going upstream and they meet another steamer going in the opposite direction, downstream, so it's a good opportunity for Oldwyn to post his letter to England. I wonder if this meant that the two boats stopped in the middle of a fast-flowing river in flood, for Oldwyn's letter to be passed over and put in the mailbag of the downstream steamer as it headed to Chindy, where the mailbag would then be transferred to a large steamship on its way north through the Suez Canal on to Europe. If his letter had fallen into the river, I wouldn't be reading it today. Please write to me, says Aldwin, Floriat budgetum. I don't know any Latin, but I think it translates as Long may the budget flourish. <laughs> letter Glindower Colwyn Bay North Wales May the 9th 1909 Dear family the budget has certainly created a record this time as regards the speed with which it has gone on its rounds it has taken so long that i really thought that it was again lost the quality of the contributions has deteriorated sadly since arthur's noble epistle though i think it was wonderful that Vera felt capable of writing at all when one remembers all she had to do in that period of strain and stress, as you all know, I went to Sydenham to see Vera play hockey for England, and very well she did it too. I enjoyed the match immensely, but it was over far too quickly, in spite of the intense cold. Father and mother were wrapped up in rugs, etc., and the latter hugged a hot-water bottle. Vera's speed fairly astonished me, and she played with such dash and vigour. On the grandstand, I heard one of the counsel say, "Miss Cox is such a much more finished player than any of the others." I had a very nice week at Sydenham, and then, after four days at home, went down to Hallam Fields to be present at Leslie's christening. The sponsors were Bernard and Mr. Thomas, who is a solicitor at Long Eaton, as well as Kitty Borbank and myself both the parents were evidently very proud of their son who is really a fine specimen i little thought when i said good-bye to bernard that we should meet again that very week in such very different circumstances on march twenty-fifth dear mother was moved to a nursing home in sydenham and underwent a very serious abdominal operation those of us who were at home father bernard vera and i will never forget the days of anxiety that followed. But on March the 29th, father's birthday, she took a turn for the better. And though she still suffered a good deal, she continued to make steady progress. Avis then came home, Mrs Brooks having let her begin her holidays a week early. And it was a good thing she did, as Burr, father and I all went down with influenza. So she and Vera had plenty to do. I struggled home on Easter Eve, April the 10th, in a very shaky condition. And then on Easter Monday, Hazel began with measles. It seemed very unfortunate, and in Owen's holidays too. However, she made a very good recovery, and now it is satisfactory to feel that she has had them. As soon as she was free from infection, I brought the two children here to Wales for a fortnight. I thought the change would do Hazel good, and I needed sea air myself, as I could not throw off the after effects of the flu. Colwyn Bay is quite a pretty place, as the hinterland is good, and there are good trees and woods quite close. It is very nice at this time of year, but of course, in August, it would be packed. They have been asphalting the end of the pier in order to turn it into an open-air skating rink, but it has been done with the wrong material, as whenever the sun gets hot, the surface all gets hot and sticky, and the skaters have to be turned off. Owen is very keen on rinking, and Hazel has had a try, and she likes it. There is an electric tramway that now runs along the coast to Landudno over the little Orme, which is far nicer than going by train. Cyril was only able to come to us for one weekend, and Owen went back to rugby at the end of the first week, so we have been much quieter lately, though we have enjoyed ourselves very much. Curiously enough, I found friends from both Preston and Wolverhampton here. We met quite unexpectedly in the street, so it has been very pleasant. Ethel Hall was staying with the Pilkingtons at St. Helen's last month, and she telephoned to me, and we arranged a meeting in Liverpool for lunch. She could not come to the house on account of measles. She brought Jack and Dick, whom I'd never seen, and I took Owen, so it was quite a gathering i think jack is very good looking and dick is wonderfully old for his age and so self-possessed owen thought dick remarkably observant and quick he said he noticed everything ethel seemed so well and bright and according to her account the navy think a war with germany must come books i have read the spin of the coin by E.R. Pershon, a new writer to me, light reading, but quite exciting and interesting. Mama, by Rhoda Broughton, is a skilful sketch of a selfish, vain old lady, who is so clever and adroit, that she is regarded by her daughters as worthy of their most admiring devotion. From Ploughshare to Parliament, by Georgina Meinheitshagen, is a faithful picture of the rise of a middle-class family at a very interesting period of our history. It begins with the letters and diary of John Potter of Tadcaster, 1728-1802, to a farmer and a shopkeeper. The last letter is dated 1837. The Potter family is now represented by nine sisters, all now living and married mostly to very well-known men, Lord Courtney, Sidney Webb, the Right Honourable Henry Hophouse, Robert D. Holt, C.A. Cribs K.C., etc., Miss Esperance and Mr. Wycherley. I have at last read it and agree with the other members of the budget in thinking it quite delightful. Farewell, your affectionate sister, Enid Isles. I have just read Aldwyn's most interesting letter, but have no space left to comment on it. <laughs> on holiday at Colwyn Bay in North Wales with Hazel and Owen, her children, and she provides all the family news from March through to May. Enid, along with many other members of the family, went to watch the England versus Scotland ladies hockey at Richmond in London back in March. Mother and father were each wrapped up in a travelling rug, and mother also had a hot water bottle to help keep her warm. This was before she had her operation at the nursing home. Enid overhears a member of the council complimenting Vera and Enid is astonished at how fast Vera can run on the hockey field. I'm frankly amazed that anyone could run quickly wearing a shirt and a tie and a skirt almost to the ankles, not to mention a complete lack of proper trainers. I've been watching the fabulous hockey at the Olympics in Tokyo. Amazing speed and dexterity, quite bizarre to imagine women playing hockey wearing a long skirt. Enid describes the christening of baby Leslie. She doesn't say that he cries all the time, as his mother did. She doesn't call him ugly, as his father did. Enid says baby Leslie is a fine specimen and his parents were very proud of their new baby. Sometimes you need an auntie to say something nice. I like the mention that Kitty Ballbank was one of the sponsors. She was the sister of Annie May, and I knew her as my auntie Kitty, when I was small, although I never knew she was the sister of my great-grandmother. Mother goes into the nursing home for an operation on her abdomen, and there are many days of anxiety in Sydenham. Bernard, Father and Enid then all go down with influenza, and Avis and Vera look after everyone. Enid goes back home to Liverpool, not yet better, and her nine-year-old daughter Hazel then goes down with the measles as soon as hazel is free from infection enid and her children owen and hazel go to colwyn bay in north wales for some sea air which is where enid is writing her letter from enid wrote they've been asphalting the end of the pier in order to turn it into an open air skating rink but it's been done with the wrong material as whenever the sun gets hot the surface all gets hot and sticky and the skaters have to be turned off owen is very keen on rinking And Hazel has had a try and likes it. The pier at Colwyn Bay was opened in 1900 and was originally 100 metres long. It was then extended to 229 metres and I think it was at the end of the lengthened pier where Hazel and Owen went rinking in 1909. It's a great word for roller skating, rinking, but the word has now dropped out of use. Enid describes how the wooden surface of the pier has been covered in asphalt but it's the wrong sort and it gets all sticky during the hot weather. I haven't discovered anything about skating on the pier at Colwyn Bay, but there are photos and accounts of similar outside skating rinks on the pier at other British seaside towns in the early 1900s. I will put some of these photos up on Twitter. Enid doesn't mention the pavilion on the pier at Colwyn Bay, or if the family went to see a show there. In later years, Morecambe and Wise and Harry Seacombe performed there. Then the pier fell into disrepair and then a large storm finished it off. But I've just been wandering up and down the prom at Colwyn Bay using maps from my desk in Australia. And the images, which are dated 2020, show that the pier is being rebuilt. Enid mentions the electric tram that runs along the coast from Colwyn Bay to Landudno. And she says it's a much nicer way to travel than by train. If you're not familiar with Great Orm and Little Orm in the north of Wales, they are two limestone headlands with lovely views of the sea and the surrounding countryside. I initially thought Enid was talking about the tram which goes up Great Orm. There are videos online showing lovely old wooden carriages which take you to the top of the hill for a great view. But there was another tram at the turn of the century which went between the two towns along the coast going over Little Orme and this tramway opened in 1907. I will put some then and now photos up on Twitter, at Cox Letters, if you want to have a look. And Enid describes meeting her friend Ethel Hall, who is the mother of the little boy Dick Hall, from the earlier podcast episode, who put his muddy stockings on inside out at Garfield House School so that Arthur, the headmaster, would not tell him off. Her husband, Mr Hall, was a naval man based in Plymouth, and it's interesting that even as early as nineteen oh nine, the British Navy knew that a war with Germany was coming. In the next episode of one hundred years of Cox, the Bernard describes the paintings at the Royal Academy in London and how the stock exchange is very busy with South African mining and rubber plantation shares. He also says the family have an excellent trio of sisters who've been caring for mother. Cuthbert describes the FA Cup final at Crystal Palace and the unsportsmanlike behaviour of the players. He then behaves like a professional agitator at the tennis club in Berkhamstead, taking on the committee because he disagreed with them. Basil Fry, the son of Dr Fry the headmaster, is further described in unflattering terms by Cuthbert. Arthur has got diphtheria and has been very ill, no antibiotics back then. He is dictating his letter to Dorothy, whose flowing and illegible handwriting makes me go cross-eyed but Arthur is still able to criticise the family members who fail to spell diphtheria with two H's. Miss Tubbs's school has an epidemic of measles. Arthur planned to take over Mount House School in the summer term, but this will now not happen. However, he is not well enough to take on a new school just now. He is recovering at a house on the middle of Dartmoor, writing his letter next to the River Dart, Their lawyer is on holiday with them and is teaching Arthur how to fish. Avis is staying in Sydenham whilst the Brooks family are at their London house. She catches the train every day to go and teach little Billy and Vera predicts that Avis will soon miss her train. Avis was always running late for everything. Vera is sick of Shackleton and the South Pole as the newspapers talk of little else. and people are proud of their local boy, but Vera believes he is full of himself, as are his sisters who live nearby. And mother has died. Not much is said by the siblings, but reading between the lines, there is much grief. But it is typical British stiff upper lip, restrained grief. Several of the siblings say, we have to keep the budget going. Mother believed it was the way to keep the family together. If you would like to write to me, About anything that is in this podcast, I would love to hear from you. My email is Machel Coxletters at gmail.com, and you can also contact me via Twitter at Coxletters, where I share all sorts of photos and pictures. 100 Years of Cox, the Machel Cox Budget Letters, and all content is subject to copyright and belongs to both myself and the Bodleian Library in Oxford. You have been listening to 100 Years of Cox.